And now I'm going to go ahead and read our passage this morning, which should be up on the screen there. It's from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. There. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and now, excuse me, it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Well, we're hitting pause on our sermon series on the book of Exodus so that we can focus on this day, on Easter Sunday. And as we begin, I want to simply ask you a question. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the resurrection actually happened? I mean, and I'm not talking about just saying, yeah, I believe it because I grew up in the church and this is kind of what I was fed. Or you say, well, yeah, I believe it because we live in the South. And to say I don't believe it is kind of like culturally wrong to say something like that. Do you actually believe it? I mean, the the creed that we just recited, the Nicene Creed, that Jesus Christ came, walked on this earth, lived a sinful life, that he was killed very unjustly, that he was dead for three days, and that he's risen again. That is an outlandish claim. Do you believe it? Because that is the very hallmark and the very center of our faith. 
Now, this is a really safe place to say, yeah, I believe it, right? It's Easter Sunday, you're in church. But if you go to a cocktail party any other day of the week and you walk around saying, hey, I believe that dead people can come back to life, you're going to be branded as a weirdo or crazy or something maybe even worse. But this morning, I want to ask you to be honest and be self-aware and to ask yourself, do I actually believe the resurrection happened? And so as we ask that question this morning, we keep good company, and not just because churches all over the world are going to be asking this very question, but I mean more specifically given the tragedy that happened in Nashville last week with the school shooting. People experiencing pain, loss, and confusion are now wondering if there's any hope. I read an article about the worship service at Covenant Presbyterian Church following the shooting, and as you can imagine, much of the service centered around this very thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of his people. In the service, a campus minister in Nashville said that when he first started doing ministry, he thought the hardest part of his job was going to get people to actually confess their sins, but he says he was wrong. That the hardest part of his job is giving people the assurance of their salvation. This is what he said. But assurance is the hard part. Is there really atonement? Is there really resurrection? Does Jesus really save us? Is it really all free grace? That's the hard part. And it's in these moments, these moments of disillusionment and confusion, that these matters are pushed to the front of our brains out of the dark recesses where they typically reside. When we are stopped in our tracks primarily by tragedy, we finally slow down enough to consider these very matters. Can we be sure? Is there any certainty to what we say we believe? I remember hearing Tim Keller a few years ago say that he didn't even know that the resurrection was true until he sat in a doctor's office and the doctor looked at him and said, it's cancer. He said when the doctor left the room and he was sitting all by himself, he began to real, ask these really honest questions, maybe for the first time. And so these moments are a real gift to us, as hard as they may be and as insensitive as that may sound. But it's in asking these questions that our faith begins to move from maybe one that was our parents or maybe one that's merely intellectual to a faith that is authentic and real, one of our hearts. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, we see that dynamic in place. And the blessing that we're given this morning is that it shows us that we can have hope, even, even in really, really dark spots. So for context, Jesus has been killed late on Friday. Preparations are hastily made for his burial. They had to get it in before sundown because at sundown the Sabbath would begin and no work was allowed to be done the next day. So early the next morning, women go to Jesus' grave to kind of continue the burial preparation process, and two angels are there. And the angels say to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? The Lord has risen. And then he points out, just like he told you he was going to do. But here's the problem. Up until this point, yeah, they've seen the angels, but nobody has seen Jesus. And there's this terrible rumor that has began to be spread, and we see it in Matthew's gospel where we're told, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So at this point, all they know is that Jesus is nowhere to be found. 
until right now, until this passage where Jesus shows up. And we're going to see that when Jesus shows up, it changes everything. So as our passage begins, there's two individuals that are making a seven-mile trek from Jerusalem back to their home in a village called Emmaus. We're told that one of them is named Cleopas. And in John 19, we're told that when Jesus is on the cross, there's a woman there with Mary, Jesus' mother, also named Mary, at the cross, and she's the wife of Cleopas. And so likely this is Cleopas and his wife Mary, disciples of Jesus. They're going home after being on the front row of what appeared to be a complete dumpster fire. Just an utter disaster. And we're told in verse 17 that Jesus walks up to them and says, well, hey, what are y'all talking about? And it says that they stood still looking sad, confused, and discouraged, which makes complete sense. Because for these two and for many, many others, everything that they had believed in and everything that they hoped in seemingly vanished in a moment, which many in Nashville faced last week, which many people in this world face every day, and I know that some of you have felt this and are living that even now. But what we can see here is that the true um, source of their despair really boils down to the question that I started with. Do you believe? Because if I went back in time, if I got in a time machine, went back to the road to Emmaus, and I saw these individuals walking, and I said, do you believe that the resurrection happened? their practical and functional answer would be no. And because of that, they have no hope. Living your life with no resurrection leads you to hopelessness. It did for them, and it can for us. Because as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And that is the reason for the pity that they are feeling. Paul pointed out earlier in 1 Corinthians that the resurrection of Christ is of utmost importance. Without it, everything falls apart. In the Christian gospel, Jesus had to live a sinless life and he had to die a traitor's death. But if he merely, merely just did those two and was not resurrected from the dead, then none of it matters The joke is on us, and we have no hope. And that is a pretty accurate description of the two people that are walking on the road to Emmaus. Look again at verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Notice what they said there. He lived a good life. Jesus was a good dude. And he goes on and says, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. There he said it. He died an unjust death, a traitor's death. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Notice what is missing. The resurrection. Because we know that the Christian gospel is about resurrection, then we can find hope in hopeless situations. And this is why the travelers are so hopeless, because to them, there was no resurrection. Pastor and author Paul Tripp has a weekly devotional he sends out every week. That's kind of redundant how I said that. But this week he had an Easter devotional, and this is what he said. Everything in the Bible, everything that your faith relies on, and all of your reasons for hope, both today and forever, hinges on Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Did you hear that? Just how important the resurrection is, and without it, we are without hope. To live outside of the hope of the resurrection means to essentially live as this life being our ultimate experience, that this is it, and which, if you pay much attention to the news, is a pretty hopeless perspective. Again, to quote Tripp from his book Forever, he said, Like them, I often lived as an attorney amnesiac. I too often lived with the unrealistic expectations and functional hopelessness that always results when you tell yourself that this life you have right here, right now, is all there is. I was confronted with the fact that, in very significant ways, at street level, we do not always live in a way consistent with what we confess to believe. You know, we constantly and continually live our lives as if this world is all there is. And because of this, we expend all of our energy pouring our resources into this life, right? Trying to earn and trying to gain our best life now. So we pour ourselves into our careers and our bank accounts and our stuff thinking that they will give us life. But here's the thing, they never give us life ultimately. And when they don't, because they're not supposed to, when they don't give us life, we feel despair. And oftentimes we'll Christianize it, right? We'll go to Jesus and we'll say, Jesus, I need you to help me here. I need you to give me these things, the thing that will make me the most happy. And so we ask him to give us a boost, to get us over the hump so that we can get what we want most. And when he doesn't deliver in the way that we think he should or in the way that we would want him to, we despair. And it leads us to hopelessness. And so what do we do? How do we have hope? Because the good news is we aren't left to ourselves and we aren't left to hope. The resurrection actually happened. And because of that, we can hope and we can be certain of it. Because as Luke starts out his gospel, in Luke 1, he gives kind of his purpose statement for his gospel that he's about to present to this King Theophilus. And this is what he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Real hope is possible. Lasting hope is possible, and it comes with certainty. And the way that we get this hope is right here in this passage. We're going to see that a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is where we can find hope, both for today and for forever. And it is a hope that will transcend any circumstance, good or bad. But the key is is that we have to see Jesus for who he actually is and why he actually came. Not just who we think he is and not just who, why we think he came, but we need to see actually who he is, and we can. We see it right here. And the first thing that we need to do to really see Jesus is to repent. And what do we need to repent of? Well, we need to repent of the faith of Cleopas, which makes no sense, I know. But let's dive back into our passage and read what Cleopas said. Then one, of them said. then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? 
And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had, here's the word, hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So at face value, there doesn't really seem to be anything wrong with what he said, but we really need to pay attention to verses 21 or 20 and 21, because where he says, Jesus was condemned to death and crucified, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, we can know looking backwards because we know how the ending goes is that it was in Jesus's death and resurrection that we were redeemed. So Cleopas said, we hope that he would redeem us, but he was crucified. The problem that we have is with his word, redeem, right? We're here in church and we hear the word redeem and we think that's something spiritual, but in the way he's using it, he meant the release of captives during a time of war. He thought the only problem that he had was the slavery that he needed to be released from, from Rome, He thought he needed political slavery, uh, freedom, excuse me. He thought he needed salvation from Rome. And he thought that Jesus came to bring about this salvation, that he was going to bring economic and political freedom. And he thought, if I just had this, if I was just out from under Rome, if I just was free from Rome, that's all that I would ever need. He thought he needed his circumstances to change, and he thought that Jesus was the one that was going to change them. And the problem is that it appears that Jesus did not come through for him. Now, here's the problem. We are on the hook because we think this very way. We rarely go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a real sinner in need of real redemption. Instead, we often go to him and we say, Jesus, I'm a sufferer. I am a victim of my circumstances and I need you to help me out here. Like Cleopas, we think Jesus comes to give us economic, political, or maybe even relational freedom. And so we go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I need you to give me these things. I need you to give me my best life now. But to go and to pray to him that way, that's not praying to a king. That's not praying to a savior. That's praying to a genie in a bottle, not the God of the universe. And so God and Jesus in response to that says, hey, listen, that's not why I came. Because your problem, your biggest problem is not your slavery to your circumstances. Your biggest problem, the ultimate problem you have is the slavery to your sin. You know, when the angel appeared to Joseph before Jesus was born, the angel said to him that you are to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not he will save his people from a bad boss or from heartache or for some unfortunate situation, but from their sins. Ultimately, that's why Jesus Christ came to this earth. Look again at what Jesus said, starting in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures all the things concerning himself. So we need to see Jesus for who he is. We need to acknowledge the actual reason that Jesus came, and we're told here how to do it. 
I want you to notice something very important that Jesus said, or maybe that he didn't say here. He didn't say, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe what the women at the tomb told you. You should just believe what they told you. But instead, he says this, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In telling them this, he's telling them, and consequently us, to really know him, you can't ground your faith in some experience. You can't base it on some emotion that you filled in the past, filled, felt in the past at a young life camp or whatever it is. Your faith has to be ground in something much, much deeper, and that is the Word of God. And he goes on to say, it's all about him, every bit of it. Now, this is a problem for us because we are largely a biblically illiterate culture. We don't read our Bibles very much. And when we do, we read it incorrectly. And so what this means is that we need to change the way we read our Bibles, because most often when we read our Bibles, we think it's about us. We think it's all about us. But the problem is, it's not. Think about this. There's the story of David and Goliath, and I'm probably pretty sure that most of us know the story about little David who gets the slingshot, slings the stone, and slays the giant. So most of us, when we would hear that story, we would think the moral of the story is, well, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Or with God's help, I can accomplish anything. So if we read our Bibles that way, at first it's super inspirational, but eventually it's going to crush us. And the reason is because the purpose of God's Word is not mere inspiration, but it's something else. Jesus says, no, 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 you've got it wrong. The Bible is about me. Every part is about me. He says, yeah, David is a good example, sure, but that's not the point. The point is this. First, that David is the little one. Of all of his brothers, he's the weakest one. God puts the weakest one up there to show us that salvation comes through weakness. But there's also another reason we need to read the story of David and Goliath, and it's because this, because David fights on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. Right? If he wins, the army wins. If he gets victory, the army gets victory. If he loses, the army loses as well. David is about Jesus. It's all about him. Except here's the difference. Our greater David, Jesus Christ, in his death, defeated death, sin, and shame. And it's in his resurrection that he gives us the spoils of the victory. It's all about him. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. The law is about Jesus and how he fulfilled it. The temple is about Jesus, how he's the temple. Every hero is about Jesus. He's the hero behind all heroes. He's the prophet behind all prophets. He's the priest behind all priests. He's the king that every king pointed to. Everything points to him. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones talks about this in her book, The Story of God's Love for You, and this is what she writes. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. 
There's lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. Do you hear that? Do you get that? Because here's what we need to remember. Yes, ultimately, the Bible is about Jesus, but it also has something to do with you. Do you know that you are God's lost treasure? Do you know that you are his most treasured possession and he gave everything to bring you back to himself to the point of his own death? He died for you. You are that valuable. You are that treasured. And when you hear that, and when you really hear it, not just with your mind, but when you hear that with your heart, not just intellectually, but to really, really believe it, then we too can say what the couple said in verse 32. And then they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us scripture? Rightly understood, the Christian gospel can pierce the hardest of hearts. When you realize that the Bible isn't just a bunch of rules, And it's not just a bunch of examples of morality, but it's a rescue mission to come and get you. His treasured possession to bring you back to himself. What is that going to do to us? What is the inevitable result of that kind of love that has been shown to us? Well, we will do the same thing that Cleopas and Mary did. We are going to bring them home. We are going to incorporate Jesus into our lives. We're going to live out this resurrection faith. Look again at verses 28 and 29. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. That is beautiful. I said in the 9 o'clock service, it reminds me of a passage in Revelation where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me knocking and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. All we have to do is invite him in. He stands at the door and knocks. When we really begin to understand how good the good news of the gospel is, then we just can't leave it here. We can't leave it here in church. Real faith doesn't exist in a silo. You can't help but talk about it because it's just that good of news. It just starts to kind of leak out in every conversation that you have. You're not content just to talk about news, sports, and weather anymore. You want to talk about bigger, more significant things. When you're at work or you're talking to a friend and you ask them how they're doing and they go, yeah, I'm I'm just doing okay. Instead of just moving on, instead you go back to them, you follow up and you go, why just okay? What's going on with you? You aren't merely concerned with your kids just being obedient or moral. That's not the goal of your parenting. But the goal of your parenting is that they know the story of the rescue and how you have been rescued as well. You actually begin to forgive people because you know that your wicked sin has been forgiven by the great king. And you aren't so concerned with building some spiritual or moral resume for yourself because you know that doesn't matter because you know that the greater David went and fought and he won the battle and because of his victory, you get all the spoils. 
When you find yourself living in this way, these are great evidences that you actually believe the resurrection to be true. But make no mistake, you will fail. I fail all the time. Just ask my family. Ask anybody that I spend time with. I blow it all the time. But there is good news because this resurrection that's given to us is all about grace. It doesn't depend on how well we live, but it's on what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. Unmerited favor given to undeserving recipients by an unobligated giver. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, no, not for me. There is no way this is for me. You have no idea what I have done. You have, not, you have no idea the things that I have said, the things that I have thought, the things that I have consumed, the people that I have hurt, the people that I have hated, the lack of forgiveness that I have. I have failed so miserably. Nobody would want me. I am not valuable. I am not worthy. And I am nobody's treasure. Well, here's something amazing. This is so beautiful and so easy to miss. And this is in verses 33 and 34. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Again, the gospel is such good news, they can't sit still. It moves them out. And what is the message that they bring? And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Did you notice something there? They said, he appeared to Simon. Do you remember who Simon is? Simon is Peter. And this may be the greatest news in the entire passage. Mike Tyson once said that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that is Peter. Because Peter had a plan and he got punched in the mouth. As a disciple of Jesus, he was always pledging his undying loyalty Jesus told the disciples, all of you will fall away because of me. And Peter said, well, maybe those losers, but not me. I'm in it to win it. I will never lose you, leave you, excuse me. Jesus said, I am going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Peter said, not on my watch. I will fight and die for you. Even the night that Jesus was betrayed and killed just three days before our passage, again, he told his disciples, you will all leave me, and one of you is going to betray me to death. And Peter said, yet again, maybe them, but not me. I would go to prison for you. I would die for you. And Jesus said, Peter, tonight, three times, you're going to deny even knowing me. And Peter said, nope, not me. Well, what happened? Peter did it. He denied him repeatedly, emphatically. I don't know him. And the third time it happens, we're told that Peter looks up, that Jesus turns his head, and he makes eye contact, and Peter knows he has failed and he has been caught. And he runs out of the temple and he is weeping. In Jesus' greatest time of need, Peter has his worst moment. And he assumes because of it, because of his failure, because of the ways he thinks he let Jesus down, that Jesus wants nothing to do with him. But that's not what we just read. And I love a detail that Mark, in his gospel account, gives of the resurrection. He says this. This is in Mark 16. And he said to them, this is the angel, Do not be alarmed. 
you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. You will see him just as he told you. Go tell the disciples and Peter. He has gone ahead of them to Galilee and he wants you there. He says, go tell Peter he wants him back. He knows exactly what Peter has done and he wants to be with him. And the same is true for you. There is nothing you have done. There is nothing you are doing. There is nothing you will do that will cause Jesus to tell you that he is done with you. There is nothing that you have ever done that he can't handle, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how awful it is. He wants to be with you. That is grace. That is good news. That is good news for even the hardest of hearts. That is the best news in cosmic history. As we close... I want to tell you one other reason why the gospel, uh, the Christian gospel being a resurrection, is such good news and why it is of utmost importance. Because the resurrection completely redefines the way that we approach suffering. As the quote on the front of the bulletin tells us that the resurrection means that the worst thing is not the last thing. And because we know the ending, it completely changes our lives in the present, especially when it comes to suffering. Because you can know that if you are in a relationship with Jesus, the hard thing that you are now enduring, the excruciating, agonizing thing, the unbearable thing that you are going through will be ultimately redeemed. Because remember, in the Christian gospel, dead things always come back to life. I was referring to the article I read about the worship service in Nashville following the shooting and the college ministers, a guy named Britton Wood, and I referred to him earlier. He ended the service with these words. He said this, one of the Scruggs boys, that's Chad Scruggs, the pastor whose daughter Hallie was shot. One of the Scruggs boys knows how to really get under my skin, he said affectionately. I'm a Bama fan. And every time, almost every time he sees me, he says, Mr. Britton, Mr. Britton, let's watch a replay of the Tennessee-Alabama game. It's got scary moments, but he doesn't sweat the scary moments because he knows the end. When you know how it ends, the scary moments lose their power. And so let me ask you again, do you believe that the resurrection really happened? Do you believe it to be true? Believing the resurrection and meeting the resurrected King Jesus changes everything. So repent, live it out, and receive the grace of Jesus that is offered to you in the gospel even today. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the confidence of your resurrection and what it gives us in that in the end all wrongs will be made right. Thank you for allowing us to rest in the assurance of our future resurrection and of living with you forever. Knowing this heals all wounds. In your name I pray, amen.